Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. This is your Red Sea Roundup host on the second Wednesday of August, August 10th. Thaddeus Romanski, great to be with you. You are listening to us on Red Sea Catholic Radio, KDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, perhaps on KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, or KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine. You might also be listening to us on redsearadio.org online or over our mobile app for the KDC or KYAR listening areas. You can get that on your Apple App Store, Google Play for your Android or iPhone device. Please take it, take a look at it, check it out, and uh, you can listen to us anywhere, anywhere in the world that has internet connectivity. Uh, great to be with you on this August 10th. This is a special day in my family because it is the birthday of one of my children. I want to give a very, very happy, happy birthday to my son, Matthew, who is turning nine years old today. Happy birthday, Matthew. This is kind of a nine, if you think about it, is sort of a really special birthday because it's three threes. It's three sets of threes. It's like super Trinitarian, right? It's three <laughs> times three. Trinitarian. Yeah. Maybe. Um, so special birthday. We hope we hope it's going to be a great day for Matthew and we love you so much, son. Wouldn't be the same without you. Y'all have had a slew of birthdays this uh, this week, and or, or at least August. Ours yep. were all in July, yep. so uh, happy birthday to the rest of the Romanski family as well. Basically. Yeah, and while we're at it, we should give, uh, let me give a happy birthday in advance to my son, Michael, whose birthday is tomorrow, hey. and to Josephine, who had her birthday on August 6th, and Andrew, who had his birthday on <laughs> July 30th. Birth week, almost. So yeah, it's Romanski birthday season is what we call it. It's awesome. How are you, Dennis? Dennis Mock in the background oh, there, folks. Oh, to be honest, I'm a bit frazzled. You know, if you're at KDC and have had a little bit rough listening listening experience this morning, we've had some technical issues with the sound card. So we're, we're missing out on our local breaks. And, um, you know, sorry, folks, we're missing out on our short-form programming in the breaks, and it keeps going back to uh, the relevant radio uh, this morning. And even EWTN breaks, it'll be uh, happening for a little while. Um so we can get it figured out. Might have to do some reinstallation of some settings. So uh, that's the just how it goes, you know, with uh, influence of the devil. He's going to try to get in, mix up the electronics. And we've been here before. It's not a problem. We'll fix it and we'll keep on going. So if you're listening locally in Brian College Station and had little bits of silence followed by some weirdness, that's what's going on. And say some prayers for us that we can get it fixed this afternoon. So I'm glad we can have the show. So it's very, that makes me very happy that we can still have the show today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. August 10th also is the Feast of St. Lawrence. Feast of St. Lawrence, one of the early martyrs of the church. Um, 
If you don't know about St. Lawrence, let me give you a, a little bit about his life and a little bit from his martyrology. Um, he was a deacon. He was a deacon at Rome um, in the third century. So this is very early on in the church. This is prior to the Christianization of the Roman Empire. So Catholicism was illegal and Catholics uh, faced persecution. But I mentioned he's a deacon. So if you if you know deacons, uh, if you have deacons at your parish, um, make sure you say a prayer for your deacons today. Let's pray for the men who are in diaconate formation for the Diocese of Austin. Maybe you have one in your in your family or in your neighborhood. So let's be praying for our deacons. Uh, let's be maybe give them an ex- extra greeting today if you if you happen to go to mass today. Thank God for our deacons, and we're thankful for the two deacons that we have on our mm-hmm. on our staff and a part of our apostolate. Deacon Mike Beauvais, who's our spiritual director, and Deacon Robin Waters, who's our director of evangelization and outreach and outreach indeed yeah thanks be to god uh saint lawrence was a deacon and as befits deacons in that that position that was established in the book of acts that they are uh to assist at the at the table during the liturgy and also to distribute the alms to the poor and to take care of Christians and their and their material needs, um, he was in charge of distributing the wealth and contributions to the poor in Rome. But he was arrested by the emperor in the year two fifty eight. Saint Lawrence is famous for how he was martyred. tortured, how he was tortured and martyred. Mm-hmm. What was that, Dennis? You you jumped in there like you knew the answer. <laughs> well, we have a godson, Lawrence Wymola. Happy happy feast day, Lawrence okay. Wymola. Happy to name you. day, yeah. Happy yeah, name yeah. day. And um, yeah, he was he was barbecued. Yes, he was. He was roasted on a gridiron. Um, but before he got to that terrible, terrible death. Um, Tradition has it that Lawrence gave a little <laughs> bit of moxie to the to the emperor or to the emperor's officials. You see, because he was responsible for distributing the contributions made to the church to to the poor, uh, he was told to bring the riches of the church to the emperor to turn them over in effect to the state. Mm-hmm. And so he got a little clever, but he also, in that clever response to the to the demand, told a great truth. You see, because he returned uh, with the poor and the sick of Rome surrounding him, and he told the judge. Here are the treasures of the church. Mm-hmm. With that as a result of his, his res- because of his response, that's what led to his torturing 
He was scourged first. Then they scorched him with red-hot iron plates. Mm. He prayed, Lord Jesus Christ, God from God, have mercy on your servant. His example converted a Roman soldier. Wow. And then famously, the next night he was laid on this gridiron and roasted. And his his humor came through again. Tradition says he cried out, at last, I'm finished on this side. Turn my body over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty amazing martyrdom. Uh, you know, we we all uh, need to look at the lives of the saints to to face what is the small martyrdoms to come. And, um, you know, Lord have mercy if we face this type of martyrdom in the future that we would be able to face it with the same strength of St. Lawrence. So, yeah, that's amazing that he would be able to, to cry out in the midst of all that pain. Now, I don't want to uh, be too macabre here, or maybe this is some gallows humor, uh, but I think it's, I think St. Lawrence would approve of, um, you know, making fun of the Romans' attempts to torture him, to make him lose his faith, to make him surrender, uh, to intimidate Christians, that persecution would make them lose faith. Um, but tonight, if you haven't made your dinner plans yet tonight, go ahead and do something on the grill. Do something barbecued, barbecued chicken, barbecue steak. Have something from the grill, and when you're eating that that smoky, charred food, remember St. Lawrence. Remember the, the pain that he endured, but he endured it while keeping his faith. He didn't give up. He persevered. That's what all of us are expected to do. We're, we're called to do that and to model, just like Dennis said, to model that perseverance of faith in little ways or even in great ways. Um, but to do that, we have to persevere and work on our faith every day. Right, we have to partake in the sacraments, especially those repeatable sacraments, confession, mm-hmm. the Eucharist. That's what I'm going to be talking about with my guest, Adam Brill, who's the liturgical coordinator from St. Thomas Aquinas. We're going to be talking about the Eucharist, especially the Eucharistic revival that has just been declared by the U.S. bishops. We're going to be getting into as much as, as we can about what's happening, what is it, what's to look forward to. It's a three-year process, uh, t- 22, 23, and 24. And we're going we're gonna to spend some time talking about the connections between Eucharist and confession. So stay tuned for that. That's on the other side of the break mm-hmm. um, with, with Adam Brill. Um, last thing about St. Lawrence, I think, Dennis, is... Um, he took care of the poor. He he saw the poor as the treasures of the church. If we think about it today, if we have an opportunity today, um, let's let's make an maybe an extra effort to turn over some of our treasures to to the poor. Put a donation in the poor box. Um, make a contribution to your local 
Catholic Charities. Um, any other, make, make a contribution to a local food bank today. That's another way that you can um, keep the poor in mind who, who Lawrence cared for so much on his, on his feast day. Amen. St. Lawrence. Pray, pray for, for us. us. Yeah. Well, we've got about a little under three minutes left in this opening segment. Um, we wanted to let you know that uh, we are observing the, the 60th anniversary of the Second Vatican Council here at the Apostolate this year. We've been running some classes on uh, encouraging people to read the documents of the council. Um, we have another one of those getting ready to open in Waco this fall, and you can start signing up for that now on our website, redcradio.org slash VC260. It's going to be um, it's going to be in Waco, like I said. It's going to be held at St. Louis Catholic Church there in, in Waco, and the first meeting is going to be September 15th, and it'll go for eight weeks. Uh, September 15th, Thursdays, at 7 p.m. in the activity center there at St. Louis and Waco. So if you live in that area and that's something that you want uh, to check out, um, you're going to pay $20 to get a great book from the Word on Fire Institute that contains the four constitutions of the Second Vatican Council. It's a discussion class, and uh, we just are encouraging people to, to read the documents and find out what the council really taught. And, and we'll have uh, we'll have more of these classes to unveil here in the next coming weeks uh, here in the Bryan College Station area. So, so stay tuned to Red Sea Catholic Radio. Check out our website frequently. Follow us on Facebook at Red Sea Radio. Um, what do you think about that, Dennis? I think we should tell them briefly about Victory Sports because we're well, that's really exactly about to sign where I up. was going next. I was going to wrap up saving yeah, the, the best for the last, if you if you don't mind. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, so regular registration for Victory Sports is closing on August 15th, Sunday, Ooh, August 15th. Let's go, people. Um, don't miss out. We still uh, have some spots left on the teams for the, the four parishes here in the Bryan College Station area, St. Thomas, St. Anthony's, St. Joseph's, and Santa Teresa. Uh, girls volleyball, ages, I'm sorry, grades first through sixth, and boys flag football, grades one through six, go to victoryyouthsports.org and register there. There's multi-child discounts available. Don't miss out. We'll see you on the other side to talk about the Eucharistic Revival. Welcome back. You are listening to Red Sea Roundup on Red Sea Catholic Radio. I'm your host on this second Wednesday of the month. Thaddeus Romanski, great to be with you. You're listening to us on KDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, perhaps KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine. Also, you can catch us on our website, redsearadio.org, or on our 
iPhone or Android apps. Get those in the app stores for those respective devices. You can call in. We're live this morning. 85 Love Red Sea, 855-683-7332. I've got a faithful friend sitting across from me, Adam Brill, liturgical coordinator at St. Thomas Aquinas. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You uh, agreed to come on and help us talk about, talk up, ruminate about, mm-hmm. discuss all things Eucharistic revival. Yep. Yep. I'm excited. <laughs> It's liturgical, so anything liturgical in my wheelhouse, and I love to talk about. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So um, the liturgical revival is a three-year process that was declared by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and it's kind of their response. I, My understanding, it was largely driven by those responses to the Pew Research Poll from I think maybe 2017, I want to say, was when that came out, that only 30% of Catholics believe that believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. Yeah, that was definitely a big uh, impetus behind it, uh, it seems like. Uh, there's probably some other things that we can talk about as well with uh, the idea of Eucharistic coherence and things like that. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's a buzzword that people might be hearing something about Eucharistic coherence. What does that mean? What is Eucharistic coherence? Sure. Uh, in short, uh, Eucharistic coherence means that um, for us to believe that the Eucharist is the true presence of Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist, and to receive the Eucharist, that to do so, we have to be living in a manner that reflects. Uh, not that we are ever truly worthy to receive it, but that we not only believe it, but live it uh, in our lives. Okay, so that would have something to do with um, moral conduct, mm-hmm. yep. L- living a moral life. Living a publicly moral life is where it really hits the road um, for people who are working in jobs that uh, have controversial aspects of it that are doing immoral things publicly or promoting immoral things publicly. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a job, though. It could be um, someone just being an activist and publicly known for being an activist in such a way to promote something that's gravely immoral. Um, but perhaps then, a government official, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps an elected official. Perhaps. Um, but yeah, I mean, it could be you or me just going out and uh, doing things as well. Right. Um, so anybody, anytime mm-hmm. you have a, a kind of a public um, aspect to your to your life or a public aspect to your role. And you are creating scandal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's this this idea of Eucharistic coherence comes into effect. Talk about the the Catholic understanding of scandal, because sometimes we we talk about oh there was a celebrity sure. scandal, but that's not ex- it's der- that meaning is derived from the Catholic understanding of scandal, and that Catholic understanding predated our secular use of the word scandal. But what yeah. is what does it mean uh, to be scandalous in in a Catholic? context. Yeah, if a, if a celebrity does something scandalous, uh, the best that it might do to you or I is we might gossip about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the church, uh, it defines scandal, um, not with a text in front of me, but uh, generally defines scandal as uh, putting a roadblock up for someone else. Uh, so therefore, uh, by my sinning, um, pushing, causing, promoting someone else to sin. Um, or to lose the faith, or to 
disagree with the church in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, rightly so. Uh, any I, I, when I do liturgical trainings for parishioners of the parish, um, I say that now that you guys are standing up here as a lector or extraordinary minister, people are going to see you. And they're going to see you as a representative of the church in some way, of the faith in some way, even if it's just the the kids who see you, uh, that you're the way you dress, the way you compose yourself, uh, how they see you at HEB, uh, all that kind of stuff comes together. That mm-hmm. something that you're doing mm-hmm. uh, now reflects the church and causes scandal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so that goes into also why. Um, there, there are many reasons why the clerical abuse scandals were deplorable mm-hmm. and disgusting and immoral, but the scandal aspect is is one one part of it, mm-hmm. right? Because those those clerics who have uh, either made promises to their bishop or they have taken vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, um, now they're publicly obviously violating those vows and they're ca- they're being a stumbling block and they're causing um, people to doubt right. the the teachings and the and the the heft of the the teachings of the church the, yeah the, I mean let alone the doubt in the grace of ordination yes. as a starting point yes uh, but then how many people have just left the church in general because of scandal like that um, that the whole faith is thrown out when they see scandal like that uh, that it really is that that scandal can be so detrimental uh, to someone's faith, even a faith that was well-grounded. Mm-hmm. Um, something uh, can happen that really sets them off in a way that they no longer are attached to their faith. So I think it's, I think it's good and right that the, that the Catholic bishops want to address this, um, this issue of scandal. They want to bring shed light on it through this notion of Eucharistic coherence, and they they want to revive belief in the true presence um, of the Eucharist. I wanted to, before we uh, kind of move into talking about the true presence and some of the liturgical aspects surrounding the, the, the Eucharist, I also wanted to, I didn't want to leave our discussion of scandal without pointing out, many of our listeners know this, um, but that there's a biblical basis in what what Adam was talking about with Eucharistic coherence, that there should be a, a coherence between how we, how we live and what we believe about the Eucharist mm. and our reception of it mm-hmm. in that. And what I'm referring to is St. Paul in one Corinthians talking about for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Yeah. So there, there's a, there's a there's a biblical and a scriptural grounding for that, for that teaching of coherence between um, action, belief and reception. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, and all of us are called to that discernment in in things that we do, whether they be public or not, that all of our sins and actions impact uh, how we should approach the Lord um, and that we should come to him in repentance first, um, coming to seek that healing grace before receiving him. 
Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, Adam, mm-hmm. what is what is the kind of timeline for the Eucharistic revival? How's it How's it going to be? You know, uh, rolled out. You might say in the in the United States. How are people going to come into contact with it? Experience mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Um, so there's uh, as with all things church, uh, there's what we say is going to happen and what actually happens on the ground. Uh, so there's going to be some discrepancies there. Um, and I think in some sense we might already be seeing some of it uh, because it started already. Uh, It was launched on the Feast of Corpus Christi this year, June 19th. Um, You may have noticed uh, our own Bishop Joe did a a Eucharistic procession in Austin um, as his inauguration of it here. Um, And that's that's where it started. And y'all also at St. Thomas Aquinas did a Eucharistic procession that next day, that Sunday. Was it the sat? Was this the Saturday before? This or? was the Sunday. The Sunday. Yeah. So we did uh, our parish. Uh, I've been seeing this revival coming for a little bit now, uh, and the bishop's talking about it. So uh, I've been preparing and doing a few other things uh, besides what's in this program here. And uh, two of those things that I can easily point to is one, the conference that you and I mm-hmm. hosted. Last August, yeah, dwell the dwell conference. Yeah, that was uh, it. Was meant to be a Eucharistic kind of pre mm-hmm. pre revival, kind of jog people's memory about yeah. what what dwell was and what went on there. And... Uh, so dwell was a three day event over at uh, Christ the Good Shepherd Chapel in Bryan, where uh, Red Sea and Saint Thomas and Saint Josephs and uh, really teamed up, and it was meant to be a deanery uh, offering where uh, the parishes could come together and adore our Lord together, mm-hmm. uh, celebrated masses that were uh, themed specifically for the Eucharist in some way. Uh, there was a 40-hour devotion adoration. Uh, mm-hmm. Not every parish here has a perpetual adoration chapel like St. Thomas. Uh, and so it was uh, getting everyone together to adore uh, for 40 hours straight, except interrupted by uh, mass, and then uh, it also had some great talks by some well-known national speakers come in mm-hmm. um, and engaging. Uh, and really, it was, it was meant to be a time of getting everyone together to pray. Uh, this was post-pandemic, where people had been watching things virtually for a while. So it was getting everyone together in person mm-hmm. uh, to do things in person and pray together in person. Um we had a concert. Oh yeah, and Matt I, Marr. I did forget to bring that up. That was the the st- we kicked it off with the Matt Mar concert. That was great. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was huge. Yeah, I remember one of the talks um, that that kind of went you know in a different direction or it concluded in a different way than I was expecting it to was Lisa Trusankos' mm-hmm. talk, and mm-hmm. she is a chemist, a PhD right. in chemistry, um, is a over in the Diocese of Tyler, Mm -hmm. and she gave a talk on Eucharistic miracles and the scientific credence behind Eucharistic miracles. Mm -hmm. But where she she ended up was you're nodding your head in in approval, um, or at least your recollection. Yeah, recollection. Um, She ended up basically saying, yeah, don't don't put faith in the scientific credence behind it. Don't put any, any, uh, it really still has to come down to your faith in the words and the tradition and the magisterium of the church that, that this is the true, the true presence. This this is 
body, yeah. blood, soul, and divinity. Yeah, and I did that in one sense. And it was kind of cha- it was kind of right. challenging. Right, it was. I know a lot of people were upset actually about oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah, I got multiple uh, <laughs> emails upset about it, and oh, wow. I wasn't expecting the talk to be that exactly. Uh, I don't think you were either. No, um, but it, I was expecting it to be more of a hey, we have good reason right. to trust our Lord's words and to trust the tradition of the of the sure. of the church. Yeah, and it, it's it's. It's an interesting point, and it's hard to struggle with, but that's really the crux of the issue here with belief in the Eucharist in general, is mm-hmm. that we can't tell physically that that it's Jesus We can't in the prove it. Yeah. And, and even if he has given us these amazing miracles uh, to express uh, in, some, in some way his presence in the Eucharist, uh, that's not the normative form of reception of, of this great grace. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that's definitely a very interesting situation that we had. And, talk that, that, we gave. and that brings me to um, an article, a blog post that I found from Monsignor Charles Pope. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm-hmm. Um, he's longtime EWTN uh, radio host. I think he puts out a fantastic blog at um, Community and Mission. This was from 12 years ago, and it was titled, What Do You Expect from Holy Communion? And he starts off the blog post with, Some people put more faith in Tylenol than they do in Holy Communion. Hmm. That's because when they take Tylenol, they expect something to happen. But many people don't really expect anything to happen when they receive Holy Communion. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that that thought? Yeah, I think that's very insightful. I think in the church, uh, we have a lot of poles, polarized uh, attractions to theology, that it's, it's one or the other, that... Uh, one extreme and the other extreme, rather than the church being in the middle. That I think there are a lot of people who receive the Eucharist without understanding, without caring, just uh, popping the host into their mouth like a pill, uh, but they don't even believe, like he's saying. Uh, but then there are people who think that uh, that they didn't really receive Jesus if they're not levitating afterwards. Mm. Uh, and I think that both of those kinds of sides of the coin are obviously misguided, that um, I definitely think the church needs to come back to an understanding that there is, or to, to a, a true acceptance of the grace of the sacraments. That if, if they do what we say they do, are we living that way? Are we experiencing it? Are we believing it? Are we doing things to show it, right? Because the liturgy is meant to express what we believe, uh, not to form what we believe. It's meant to show us in tangible ways what we believe. And if our liturgy is uh, very minimal in showing that, then then what is what is, what do we believe? Mm. Um, and that's not going to help us truly delve into the fruits and the graces. Um, sure, we can receive the Eucharist in a very minimal uh, liturgy. Uh, in a, I worked at the summer camp where we had small liturgies outside on uh, tables in the woods and. Uh, they followed all the rules, had the bishop's dispensation, had all the, we follow all the rubrics, had all the vestments that were needed, uh, and grace was received. Um, but the grace was received there because we tr- knew what was happening mm-hmm. and we truly engaged in it. Um, and then I've been in liturgies where it's been highly operatic, extravagant music, and it's gotten in the way of truly understanding. But if our liturgy doesn't truly express it, uh, it makes it hard for us to grasp it. And then uh, when we receive, are we actually disposing ourselves to the graces there? Mm-hmm. Uh, Let, we, let's take yeah. a little tangent um, 
your point about the Eucharist in the uh, the woods. Mm-hmm. Talk for a le- a, just real quickly, define for people, why was that Eucharist licit and valid? valid. Yeah. Uh, so the normative form of celebrating the Eucharist is in a consecrated space uh, on a consecrated altar. Uh, that would be a church or a chapel mm-hmm. uh, primarily. Uh, but there are some places where due to uh, the need of uh, the pastoral need that a bishop can dispense from that obligation to allow for uh, the faithful to experience the liturgy uh, and the Eucharist in a way that is uh, needed. Uh, the clearest example that most people point to is uh, Pope John Paul II himself. Uh, when he was a chaplain for the university center, uh, these Forsati hikes that the students here take, he started that kind of thing, going hiking in the woods, mm. and he would bring an altar stone with him, a consecrated piece of stone mm-hmm. uh, with a relic in it to celebrate the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. That uh, That's what was needed along with the, the dispensation to do it, but... Uh, yeah, my example is going to yeah. be every military chaplain yeah. has a dispensation oh, yeah. to do a field mass, mm-hmm. and they have an altar stone. Put that on the, mm-hmm. you know, the the. They don't the even Jeep. need the altar stone. Oh, they now. don't. Okay. Not anymore. But okay. um, you just need the basic corporal and a cloth and stuff like that. But they've the got that part. dispensation to do sure. it in a space that's not a, not a consecrated sacred space. Yeah, because yeah. it's needed. It's exactly they, for those soldiers. Um, there. You can think that there are a lot of situations where that where that might occur, mm-hmm. um, or where uh, people are uh, under siege themselves—not just the soldiers, but um, parishioners who are in a war-torn country. That maybe Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, they can't really make it to their churches right now right. very easily to right. celebrate the liturgies. And our and our prayers go out to those to those people mm-hmm. um, as we discuss. Um, Almost a situation here where we're we're taking the Eucharist for granted. Right. That's kind of what we're that's kind of what yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. Um, we live in this land of prosperity, this land of um, uh, of freedom, and uh, we take for granted this beautiful gift, this beautiful meal, this beautiful sacrifice set before us by our Lord. Right. And obviously, in this community, there's a great belief in the Eucharist. Right. Yes. Because we have. Uh, at least one full perpetual adoration chapel, and we have multiple chapels that have adoration throughout the day that isn't 24-7. Uh, where I grew up, we didn't have, I mean, in DFW, there was very few that you but could let's, point let's to. But let's talk about at St. Thomas Aquinas. I mm-hmm. know that you, y'all are wanting people to get more involved in maintaining that that yeah. adoration, that perpetual adoration. Talk about that need and how people can do that. Yeah, so uh, after COVID, when we came back, um, we said that, I mean, it's a requirement to, to have perpetual adoration. You have to have at least one person there with our Lord in the monstrance sure. uh, for every hour that he's uh, exposed. exposed. Uh, and when we came back from COVID, we said we couldn't do it until we got back one person at every hour. And we didn't for a while. So we, had ador- we didn't have adoration back as early as we wanted it. Uh, then when we finally got enough to say we can do one person back or we can have a couple of people that we're willing to do for the time being multiple hours. Uh, we said, we're good. We'll bring it back. And then, um, we thought that people would come back over time as they felt more comfortable. Uh, and some people have, but there are many hours, a lot of hours that had, uh, no ador. Uh, and then there are even more hours that had 
uh, only one adorer. And uh, in a day, in a post-Dobbs country that we're in, um, the Supreme Court decision, there's been a lot of vandalism. There's been a lot of anti-Catholic violence and hate. Uh, and uh, the diocese and the parish and parishioners uh, don't want to put themselves at risk uh, and don't want to put our Lord at risk uh, to have adoration that uh, where somebody isn't comfortable or somebody isn't capable of uh, securing the monstrance themselves, uh, that it's just unsafe. And so we did a big push right now to try to get people back into that. Uh, you can go to our page, uh, our website, stabcs.org slash adoration, and there's a sign-up form there with all the hours that are open. Um, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, yeah. And it's very clear. It's got all the hours that have, and it's list, it lists whether you're the first adorer or whether you're a co-adorer. Uh, and the idea is to get two back so that way we can have it. And um, we, we, we're we just trying to get back to stasis there, uh, mm -hmm. to regular mm -hmm. life there, uh, but just to be safe for everyone. Um, but it's, I mean, it's a great gift here, right? Uh, it's 20-something years that they've been doing it, and uh, it's it's a great gift. And the, the to think of how many vocations have come from young people here, at St. Mary's, who've been able to go throughout the night over to St. Thomas and pray. Mm -hmm. uh, how many spouses have found solace and support in their marriage? Um, how many people have just found Christ in general by being able to go to a, a sacred space that's open at any time? I will say that the list of available hours, while long, it's not as long as I was expecting that it might be. <laughs> okay. Because of what I've heard. But there's, and you're right, there's... um. There's a number of them where it's still a co-ador a co that's right. needed. There's yeah. only four hours where there's nothing. There's nobody at all. Yeah. Friday yeah. at 1 a.m., Saturday at 2 a.m., Saturday at 2 p.m., Saturday at 5 p.m. It yeah. doesn't have anybody covering it right, right. now. Right. Um, but the, but then there's there's uh, maybe two dozen hours that, that still need one person. So, again, that's stabcs.org slash adoration. You don't have to be a parishioner of St. Thomas Aquinas to to sign up. Is that true or not? Uh, it, we do want parishioners primarily as it is a okay. parishioner activity. Okay. Uh, other people can obviously put their, uh, registration in. Um, it's not that we can't let them at all support. Uh, but if it's a parish activity and a parish thing, then we want parishioners to be the ones to support it for sure. Okay. Um, for students, we refrain on having students as a full-time adore because their schedules are so infrequent. They leave for holidays and sure. stuff like that. Uh, they can be on they a list. Out. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah. They can be subs uh, and they can sure. be on a list. Sure. We have a list of subs that are available for sure. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great, it's a great ministry. It's a great. Time. No, no, no. I'm not casting aspersions on any yeah. students that are yeah. listening right yeah. now. You just, you'd know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. But um, I mean, it comes back to just the reality that adoration the Eucharist itself is uh, himself is uh, such a great uh, grace in our lives um, that I think uh, either Fulton Sheen or Padre Pio said something like it would be more easy for the son to not exist than for the church to exist without the Eucharist. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It'd be easier for the world to exist without the son than for us to ha not have the Eucharist that it's so integral to our faith. Um, there's another anecdote. Uh, 
Pope Emeritus when he was a, a cardinal, um, and there he was on a committee discussing an Eastern Church entering the Catholic Church again, uh, and discussing different liturgical rites. There was debate about whether they actually had the Eucharist with the prayers they were saying, mm-hmm. uh, and he said, "You're telling me, well, paraphrasing here, but you're telling me that these Christians in this world-torn country." surrounded by people who hate them, attack them, and kill them, that they survived for centuries without the Eucharist? Mm-hmm. I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And that was the major that, that justification. Was his, that was his litmus test. Yeah. Mm. That they were able to survive centuries of persecution, murder, kidnapping, uh, it, governments that are not Christian, mm-hmm. um, taking their rights away, taking their lives away, that they were able to make it through because they had the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think another example is um, Catholicism in Japan after mm-hmm. the missionaries were kicked out. Mm-hmm. Those Catholics maintained, um, they, they were kind of existing on maybe the fumes of, of the yeah. Eucharist because they didn't have, they didn't have priests, they didn't have sure. the Eucharist um, yeah. mass. Um, so it must have, it must have done incredible uh, work in, establishing that faith community there. And at that time, those uh, the faithful there didn't receive the Eucharist every day. That's right. Right? They barely received the Eucharist once a month, mm-hmm. um, and that's on a, in a good situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, not, that's because of, A, uh, like a kind of Jansenism that said you don't receive the Eucharist that often, but also just the reality of the missionaries, right? Like they, didn't, they weren't able to make it to every community every day mm-hmm. or every week to mm-hmm. give them the Eucharist, so they didn't have the chance to take it for granted like we do. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back to uh, Monsignor Pope. Yeah. Um, he gets down to the end of his blog post and he says, you know, so what do I expect from communion? He says, quote, I can only say that I expect to become Christ. I will say it has not happened in an instant, but rather incrementally, organically, but as I have been faithful to Holy Communion, to prayer, scripture, confession, and the liturgy, I have experienced dramatic change. I have sin, seen sins be put to death. I have more joy in the Lord. I am more confident and serene, less anxious and resentful. I love more and more compassionate and have more understanding. I do not fear most of the things that I used to fear. I am less greedy and more generous, end quote. Hmm. I think what's important about that is he ties reception of Holy Communion to prayer, scripture, confession, the liturgy. He's not just talking about Mass there, he's talking about the liturgy of the hours, Mm -hmm. um, following the liturgical calendar. Um, Why is it so, so critical to integrate our reception of Holy Communion into these other practices? I mean, that goes back to what you were starting to talk about with the that's another that's another maybe form or understanding of Eucharistic coherence, right? Mm-hmm. Our spiritual life has to yeah. has to be in coherence with our reception of the of the Eucharist. Right. Yeah, I think that uh there are a lot of Catholics that they go through and their faith is uh every Sunday coming to mass once one hour a week and that's their faith and um for those that uh, were raised with nothing else uh it's it's the mode of operation that they go through. Um, but the the faith is 
not meant to be just one thing either that uh we don't just have one sacrament right right we, we have seven sacraments seven sacraments uh and we have as you noted the liturgy of the hours and blessings and devotions and um i mean every every country has had some kind of devotional spiritual life that's mm-hmm. been uh nation building in a way that's mm-hmm. something that's been really uh behind the people behind the culture um that the liturgy is meant to be uh, an important place, but it's meant to unite all of us mm-hmm. in a communal thing. And the Eucharist is that the highest of that act. Uh, but that uh, we're also still supposed to have our own relationship with Christ. Um, that if we show up uh, to the banquet, to the wedding feast of the Lamb, right, as uh, Scripture d- portrays the Eucharist, uh, the wedding feast, if we show up to the wedding feast without a garment— the bridegroom won't let us in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that garment is a relationship with him. That's to show that we know him. Uh, we wouldn't have received a garment for the wedding if we had no relationship with him. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have sent us one in the mail. Um, or uh, uh, if we lose it uh, because we didn't care, we didn't pay attention, um, then that's not showing that we truly want to be there. Mm-hmm. And that uh, it that kind of practice of virtue, of uh, spirituality helps not only helps uh, create in us a desire to return to Christ in the Eucharist, uh, but also uh, feeds into that that prayer mm-hmm. that we have and that we offer as a community. I think that your allusion to the parable about the wedding feast and the wedding garment, um, that makes me think about our baptismal garment mm-hmm. that we receive mm-hmm. that we're supposed to keep clean, clean. through... Yeah confession through mm-hmm. the sacrament of reconciliation and Pope John Paul II in Redemptor Hominis, and I'm taking this from sure. a, from a, another article that I found, so it's not like I just pulled this right <laughs> from my head just now. Um, but he quoted, he quoted St. Paul um, who wrote, let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So again, that tie between confession and reception of Holy Communion, the worthy reception of Holy Communion. And I think that connection between those two sacraments, that for me um, exposes the, I don't want to say falsehood, but I think an incorrect understanding of the idea of the Eucharist being um, not a reward for the... Hmm. Um, sure. You, you know that, that that phrase that's been kicked around. Yeah, not a lately. reward for the excellent, but uh, medicine for sinners or right, right. things like that. And and it is. It is it yeah. is a medicine for, for us as as sinful fallen creatures right. to help us become Christ like Monsignor Pope was talking about. Mm-hmm. But that that kind of um acute care, yeah. that trauma that traumatic care to our wounded bodies are sinful bodies when we commit personal sin mm-hmm. that's not what the eucharist is for the mm-hmm. Euchar- the sacrament of confession is what we use in those situations yeah for right? gra- grave matter the the eucharist does not cleanse us from right. that sin but does uh, condemn us more as you quoted uh, paul earlier um that the if you're if you had a gash uh in your throat uh you wouldn't be able to eat anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if someone gave you food, 
if someone gave you medicine, if a doctor prescribed you a pill and said, hey, here's medicine for your throat, it's going to help you heal. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> if you can't swallow the medicine, <laughs> then it's pointless. Right. Um, right. So the doctor has to suture your throat, uh, mm-hmm. or do whatever medical procedures needed uh, to provide you that care and that healing so that way you can receive the rest of the medicine that you need mm-hmm. uh, to, to heal. Uh, and the spiritual life is very uh, relative to uh, medical life that uh, our spiritual, our soul, uh, it gets wounded and that we need healing um, and that the Eucharist is part of that healing, but it's more of a sustaining uh, in holiness than it is uh, that initial uh, cauterizing or, or other extreme mm-hmm. major uh, innovation that's needed to help. Yeah. So my kind of my hobby horse that I'm going to be on around this, the Eucharistic revival is I really want to see a greater connection between confession and Eucharist. I I want to see people called to, I think there needs to be as much call for people to come back to confession, to go to confession more frequently, to take confession more seriously, to um, let's, let's be educating people about how to do better examinations of conscience so that we can, so that people can really have the most fruitful confession that they possibly can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, uh, it, the, the Eucharist and the penance being the two sacraments that you can receive just infinite number of times mm-hmm. are so integral related. And it's yes. so obvious that they're integrally related that there needs to be definitely that greater growth and desire to receive them together, to understand that, they go together that way. Uh, if you look at the uh, Eucharistic Bible's website, uh, it's not just a, uh, they have a lot of like helpful education resources, and it's not just uh, resources on what the Eucharist is, uh, but they have as well resources on confession. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, That's great. Yeah. That's great to hear that. Because like we kind of started our conversation with, um, with about Eucharistic coherence, um, if we don't have an understanding that we are sinful and that we may have committed actions, thoughts, spoken things that bar us from receiving the Eucharist, Mm -hmm. and there's no reason that we should be barred from the Eucharist, then I think that points to, that's part of pointing to not understanding what the Eucharist is and and who the Eucharist is and what a gift it is. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that uh, it comes first to, to say, what is the Eucharist? Mm-hmm. And then to acknowledge, oh, if that's what the Eucharist is, wow, that I need to do better, <laughs> or I uh, I need to receive Him with more reverence. I need to go to confession more. I need to be more uh, in in line with my belief. Once I have that belief, mm-hmm. um, that going to confession won't uh, make us believe in the Eucharist, um, and neither will receiving the Eucharist either. Uh, it can help uh, because the graces are there, obviously, um, to to believe, to come to a more full belief that it is Jesus, that you might have a little doubt that receiving the Eucharist, might, that grace might then enflesh, and you might really fall in love with the Eucharist and truly believe it. But uh, to truly engage in the Eucharist, there, there has to be some kind of initial inspiration or conversion uh, around uh, understanding that it's truly him, uh, and then that that inspiration or conversion then leads to a deeper uh, 
uh, metanoia conversion uh, in penance and then in uh, true embracing in the Eucharist and receiving the okay, Eucharist. Okay, so that's, that's really good, that, idea, that notion of inspiring people being inspired to faith yeah. in the Eucharist. I think that's one of the hardest parts about this whole thing. Yes, I was yeah. just going to ask, what can what can we do? What can be done? Yeah, I don't know what uh, what can truly be done because, uh, and I I talk about this with working with those in becoming Catholic programs and RCA and whatnot, and talking with other liturgists about it and other parishioners and staff members about it. That uh, we can tell them the doctrines all day, uh, but until they have the graces of the sacraments. Uh, then they can't fully, truly understand the supernatural graces and the supernatural beliefs that we have. Um, but then even still, that's not a fix-all, that we can't force someone to truly understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the best we can do, uh, I, a lot of, uh, without trying to sound too cynical, a lot of Protestant churches, they when they do worship, they manufacture Emotions, mm-hmm. uh, the lighting, the sounds, the music, uh, things like that are done to manufacture a physical response and emotive response mm-hmm. uh, in in the parishioner. Uh, we cannot mass, mass psychology, no right, pun, in, right. pun intended, but yeah. that's what it is. We cannot manufacture uh, as good faithful Catholics in the church. We cannot manufacture faith in someone else, true authentic faith, but we can facilitate it by providing the resources that they need by whether that be books and studies, whether it be radio shows. But I think you would also say beautiful, reverent yep. liturgy. Yep. That was because my you were one. talking about yep. how it shows what we mm-hmm. believe. Yeah. So if people see reverence and the sacral nature of the mass, it will presumably inspire them why are they why are they treating yeah. this bread and wine this way yeah yeah so what are you going to do about it <laughs> are we going to have are we going to have some um do you have any special or focused liturgies planned kind of like you did for the the dwell conference uh, where we had some of those votive masses like you were alluding to yeah, uh, one of the things that I've started at St. Thomas, uh, I started this year on a little bit, uh, but we'll be doing over the next couple of years. Um, the Feast of Corpus Christi didn't used to just be a one-day feast. It used to be an octave, uh-huh. uh, eight mm-hmm. days celebrated, and mm-hmm. uh, that got removed in the 50s. Uh, but St. Thomas, who wrote the text for the Feast of Corpus Christi, uh, is our patron, and our chapel is dedicated to St. Julian of Liege, who instigated the feast. Oh, through. I didn't know that. I yeah. didn't know that it was dedicated to St. Julien. Yeah, uh, she was the mystic in France who Christ came to and said, hey, basically, institute this feast of okay. Corpus Christi. Okay. Uh, so we dedicated it to her to show that parallel between her and St. Thomas. Uh, and so we have an octave now at the parish where we're basically doing votive masses and processions and stuff like that uh, to help promote belief in the real presence. Uh, we obviously have resources available the diocese, I know, is planning to do a lot here coming up. I know that the youth conference that I'm involved in next year, the theme will be around uh, Eucharist and the Eucharistic revival. Okay. Uh, I know the bishop is planning to do more around the diocese, and I think he wants us uh, to be doing things as a parish. 
And as and a this deanery. first year is supposed to be diocesan-led, right? And then yeah. the next year is supposed to hand off to the parishes to right. kind of do their... Right. The second year is the parish level, and then the third year is all of us going out into the, the big, world. And the big Congress in Indianapolis, yep. I yep. think, right? In Indianapolis. In, tw- in 2024. Mm-hmm. So um, we have been talking this morning with Adam Brill, who's the liturgical coordinator at St. Thomas Aquinas in College Station. I think we had a really good discussion about the Eucharistic revival, what it means, what it's going to take. We want to encourage you to um, go to confession more frequently. We want to encourage you to deepen your your prayer life, um, follow those words of Monsignor Pope, and we want to ask you to continue listening to Red Sea Catholic Radio as we have um, more resources we're going to be putting on the air to guide you during this Eucharistic revival. Uh, next week will be Pam Marvin. This is your host, Thaddeus Romanski, signing off. Thank you so very much for listening. And when choosing between the values of heaven and the values of earth, always round up. Since you wake up.